This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Rakshit Panwar and colleagues entitled Relative Hypotension and Adverse Kidney-Related Outcomes Among Critically Ill Patients with Shock, a Multicenter Prospective Cohort Study. I'm joined today by author Dr. Rakshit Panwar, a staff specialist in intensive care at the John Hunter Hospital and conjoint senior lecturer at the School of Medicine and Public Health at the University of Newcastle in New South Wales, Australia. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Michael. Now, I'd like to start by commenting on some novel aspects of your study. Your, your study was a multi-center observation of over 300 critically ill patients, and it examined the associations between relative hypotension and adverse kidney-related outcomes. I think both of these aspects are relatively novel. Uh, the decision to look at relative hypotension as opposed to absolute hypotension, and the decision to look at adverse kidney-related outcomes rather than a more traditional outcome such as mortality. Uh, what was the rationale for these decisions when you were designing the study? Thanks, Michael. Um, this is an important question and uh, really the crux uh, of this study. So what got us interested on this topic is that uh, if you look at conventional practice or the current guidelines, the recommended mean arterial pressure or the MAP target for a patient with shock on vasopressor therapy is about 65 millimeter mercury. But in the community, such patients can have a wide range of usual blood pressure readings during their pre-illness state. Even if we consider the normal range of blood pressure, example, 90 over 60 millimeter mercury on the lower end, up to 120 over 80 millimeter mercury on the upper end, it can give you a usual map ranging from 70 to 95 millimeter mercury. And these are the patients with normal blood pressure. And we are not even talking about hypertensive patients here. So practice of aiming for a standard or a uniform MAP threshold, as generally recommended, may result in a degree of blood pressure deficit or relative hypotension among patients who may be accustomed to a higher level of blood pressure in their usual pre-illness basal state. Take an example of a patient with usual MAP of 70 millimeter mercury. If we aim a MAP of 65 millimeter mercury, that might be just fine. But for another patient with a usual MAP of 95 millimeter mercury, a MAP of 65 may be quite suboptimal with a MAP deficit of over 30%. So our hypothesis was that uh, such blood pressure deficit would be common in real-world practice. And further, it may be associated with adverse kidney-related outcomes. Now, the reason we looked at kidney-related outcomes was that kidneys receive nearly a quarter of the cardiac output. And so, in a way, are on the forefront to bear an immediate impact of a relative drop in the perfusion pressure. And when we also see acute kidney injury in a patient with shock as a, as a more uh, proximate event than mortality. So we thought that if there's any effect, we are more likely to see it in terms of kidney-related adverse events. I'm interested in the exposure variable that you selected to represent relative hypoperfusion. You use a time-weighted average mean perfusion pressure deficit. I'm very interested in this variable and why you chose it. Could you start by explaining what the mean perfusion pressure deficit is? Sure. So we chose mean perfusion pressure as it is considered a global surrogate measure of the net perfusion pressure for the organs. 
in essence, uh, MPP or the mean perfusion pressure is a systemic arteriovenous gradient for the organs that take into account both the inflow pressure, the MAP, and the outflow pressure, the CVP. Now, several studies have reported poor outcomes with lower MAP, and several other studies have reported poor outcomes with higher CVP. So as a parameter, that is a function of both MAP and CVP, we thought that the MPP would be the most sensitive parameter for this study. And uh, we define MPP deficit as the percentage difference between a patient's pre-illness basal MPP and the achieved MPP whilst on vasopressor support. We consider time-weighted average uh, deficit as a measure of overall burden of relative hypotension that each patient was exposed to during the vasopressor support. So to determine the pre-morbid mean perfusion pressure, you needed to know what the pre-hospitalization mean arterial pressure and central venous pressure were. I understand how you got the mean arterial pressure from chart review. How did you determine pre-morbid CVP? The pre-morbid CVP was uh, based on the previous echocardiography study following uh, standard guidelines. And where an echocardiography study was not available, then uh, we took published mean values uh, stratified for presence or absence of heart disease uh, as uh, previously reported. And when, when the patient was in intensive care unit in the study, then the bedside nurses, they uh, undertook four hourly uh, CVP monitoring at uh, punctual points. Now, I'm interested because, you know, we see big differences in MAP uh, amongst the community, but even in, you know, the severely volume overloaded compared to normal, CVP only varies between patients by a few millimeters of mercury. So, I mean, how much contribution do you think that has compared to the MAP in relationship to the mean perfusion pressure? So um, it is true that uh, the MAP is a major determinant of uh, MPP. Uh, but in some cases, if uh, CVP, the outflow pressure, is extraordinarily high, uh, it can result in a significant drop in the net perfusion pressure. And uh, I, I agree. Yes, yes, it can be a reflection of uh, fluid overload and uh, among other things could be simply due to uh, positive pressure ventilation or uh, some degree of uh, right heart uh, dysfunction. Well, all limitations aside, I think that your choice of the mean perfusion pressure deficit is a very smart choice. It was much more physiologically relevant than either CVP or MAP by itself. I was wondering if we could get into the inclusion criteria. I noticed that there were a lot of patients that were excluded from this study, which raises the concern of selection bias. Could you walk us through how patients were included or excluded for your study? Sure. So patients were deemed eligible if they were aged 40 years or older, were within 48 hours of ICU admission, were receiving a vasopressor or an inotrope for at least four hours for a suspected shock state, and were receiving additional uh, respiratory support in the form of either high-flow nasal oxygen therapy or positive pressure ventilation. And overall, uh, patients were mostly excluded if they either had already developed severe AKI or were in imminent need of uh, renal replacement therapy, or they had end-stage renal disease, or were moribund and had treatment limitations. And patients for whom clinicians likely preferred a lower blood pressure target, for example, active bleeding or trauma or cardiac surgery or aortic injury, or if the clinicians preferred a specifically higher blood pressure target, example, cerebral or abdominal perfusion pressure guided therapy, 
these patients were also excluded according to our preset criteria. So one of the challenges that I frequently find with critical care studies is trying to account for the natural variation that occurs with clinical care. At the study hospitals, how did the physicians manage blood pressure or hemodynamics? Was there any sort of explicit protocol or was it just whatever they wanted to do? And how did you account for that? So um, the study was conducted uh, in a real world setting. Uh, all the participating sites, uh, they were academic units. Uh, in general, there are policies and guidelines for fluids and uh, vasopressor use uh, modeled on best practice uh, recommendations. Uh, so obviously, as an observational study, uh, we were not in a position to protocolize anything. But what we can tell from the data that we have is that the achieved mean arterial pressure was uh, generally well above the threshold of uh, 65 millimeter mercury. Yeah, I thought it was remarkably consistent how when I reviewed your data, it seemed that the physicians all behaved very similarly. Yep. So let's talk about the results. How common was kidney injury and how was it associated with relative hypoperfusion? So uh, in terms of our key exposure measure or the magnitude of uh, relative hypotension, the median MPP deficit was 19%. And over half of the time points were spent with greater than 20% MPP deficit. In terms of how common was, was the acute kidney injury, uh, nearly one in two patients developed AKI, uh, an increase of one or more AKI stage according to the KDGO criteria. And one in four patients developed new significant AKI, an increase of two or more AKI stage uh, according to uh, KDGO criteria. And about 30% of patients developed major adverse kidney event within 14 days. And in terms of association between the key exposure of relative hypotension and AKI, in a multivariable analysis that was adjusted for relevant and pre-specified risk factors for AKI, we found that for every percentage increase in the time-weighted average MPP deficit, the adjusted odds of developing new, new significant AKI and major adverse kidney event increased by nearly 6%. Likewise, there was a significant association between the percentage time points with greater than 20% MPP deficit and the odds of developing new significant AKI and major adverse kidney event. We also analyzed death within 14 days as an, as an individual outcome. And it also showed independent relationships with all the measures of uh, relative hypotension. You know, I think that's fascinating that you found uh, such a strong relationship uh, there between this mean perfusion pressure deficit and kidney injury. But you, correct me if I'm wrong, you observed no relationship between absolute hypotension, meaning a map less than 65 millimeters of mercury and kidney injury. Is that correct? Yes, but uh, this needs to be viewed in context that uh, time spent under the map threshold of uh, 65 millimeter mercury was fairly low. Uh, in the context of new significant AKI, uh, we did not find any relationship with percentage time spent under MAP of 65. But in the context of major adverse kidney event, the relationship was weak, and however, still it did not reach the st statistical significance. You know, one thing I had noted is that a large percentage of the population, the study population, about 60% of the patients had a diagnosis of hypertension. And one possibility might be that patients with greater comorbidities are more likely to have mean perfusion pressure deficit since their baseline is so high. So how did your group attempt to address this possibility of confounding? 
Yes, uh, a significant proportion of patients in our cohort had chronic hypertension and our multivariable models were adjusted for hypertension as a comorbidity, among other risk factors for AKI. Uh, the basic premise of this study is that the pre-illness blood pressure level may be different for different individuals. And this could well be the case for hypertensive patients too. Some might have excellent control of blood pressure, while others might not. And this is also applicable to non-hypertensive patients in the community. Many patients may have borderline high blood pressure without having a formal label of hypertension. So the pre-illness basal blood pressure measurements, they were agnostic to these uh, circumstances as they were derived from the actual readings. And we considered the, this basal blood pressure as a reference frame against which the blood pressure deficit during the vasopressor support was assessed for each patient. Now, we included several relevant comorbidities in our multivariable models. And after adjustment, the association between uh, relative hypotension and adverse uh, kidney-related outcomes uh, were still significant. You know, another common challenge with studying critically ill patients is having to deal with confounding by indication. And that is when sicker patients end up getting more therapies, specifically fluid and more vasopressors. But your study found that the mean perfusion pressure deficit was not associated with increasing vasopressor dose. Is that correct? Yeah, this is really interesting. If you look at absolute values of the achieved MAP and achieved MPP in our cohort, they seemed adequate, well within current recommendations. But in spite of that, patients were exposed to a significant degree of blood pressure deficit. Why? Because the baseline for a relative drop in blood pressure was different for different individuals. And pre-illness blood pressures were typically not taken into account before setting the blood pressure targets. For example, many patients continue to receive a tiny amount of vasopressor dose while being exposed to a significant degree of blood pressure deficit. And on the other hand, some were in fact continued on vasopressors even while having a degree of blood pressure surplus. And so, so the most probable explanation in our view is that clinicians were likely unaware of the relative blood pressure deficit or relative blood pressure surplus vis-a-vis -vis the current vasopressor dose. And therefore, the exposures to such blood pressure deficit or relative hypotension amongst patients were likely inadvertent. You know, along similar lines, I'd be interested in how receipt of fluid might have also affected mean perfusion pressure. You know, as patients get more fluid, their CVP may rise and mean perfusion pressure may decrease. What's your opinion about that? Yep. So as you know, an adequate fluid resuscitation is one of the core management principles for patients with shock. Uh, and yes, uh, over-enthusiastic fluid uh, resuscitation can also increase the CVP along with uh, mean arterial pressure but actually may not end up making too much of a difference to the achieved mean perfusion pressure. We collected data on fluid volume that was uh, administered in the 24 hours leading up to T0, the time of initiation of vasopressors, but we did not collect data afterwards. All I can say is that uh, the level of achieved CVP was uh, similar to what has been reported in other recent large clinical trials that enrolled patients uh, with shock. 
Yeah, one nice thing about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines is that it's led to a fairly uniform approach to how we manage sepsis and septic shock with regard to hemodynamics, which probably reduces a lot of that variation. I wanted to talk briefly about a growing schism that's occurring in critical care medicine regarding protoclast care. Some people adhere to a one-size-fits-all approach. Others uh, adhere to tailored medicine. And we had a brief discussion about this with Dr. Gershengorn on our last podcast. Uh, But your study reminded me somewhat of the 2015 sepsis spam study, which demonstrated that higher MAPs didn't confer benefit in the general population of sepsis and septic shock, but hypertensive patients had less renal replacement therapy if you targeted a higher blood pressure. So where do you fall on the spectrum of protocolized versus tailored medicine with regard to managing shock? (laughs) So uh, I'm very much on the side of uh, tailored or individualized medicine. Um, I think think we do it in practice for uh, several other interventions. For example, antibiotics and fluid uh, administration, oxygenation targets. I mean, the way you... Uh, targets uh, oxygen saturation for COPD patient, for example, or ARDS, uh, and uh, similarly, ventilative strategies where you try to modify your strategies based on lung compliance. But perhaps we don't do it as much for uh, the blood pressure. Now, the sepsis spam trial, it did show better renal outcomes, but no mortality benefit with higher MAP target among patients with chronic hypertension. But in that trial, patients who were randomized to higher MAP target, they were uh, indiscriminately exposed to higher doses of norepinephrine, regardless of their baseline blood pressure levels. And as as I said earlier, some hypertensive patients can actually have quite a good control of blood pressure in their pre-morbid state and may not necessarily need higher blood pressure. While some patients with no diagnosis of hypertension may have blood pressure just about the threshold for hypertension, and such patients may well benefit from aiming for higher blood pressure. However, such a tailored uh, intervention has not been tested in a randomized uh, controlled trial setting. Our study shows that uh, in contrast to usual standard variables such as achieved MAP or time spent with MAP under 65 millimeter mercury, The key exposure variables related to relative hypotension had much stronger association with new significant AKI or major adverse kidney event and even death within 14 days. So therefore, the individualizing blood pressure targets that take into account patients' own pre-illness blood pressure might be a better strategy. However, this needs to be tested in an interventional trial. Well, so let's talk about that. You mentioned that in your paper that part of the study was to help generate data for a future trial. And you also discussed the need for future trials incorporating a tailored therapy for blood pressure. So if you were going to design a trial, what target would you focus on? So uh, these findings, uh, they give us uh, and others uh, good reasons to pursue the strategy of individualized blood pressure targets among ICU patients with shock. Um, In this context, uh, individualized would mean uh, aiming for patients' own pre-illness baseline blood pressure or perfusion pressure. And if I may add for those uh, listening to this podcast, if you might be interested to collaborate on an RCT on this question, please get in touch. We would be very happy to collaborate with our international colleagues. Uh, A pragmatic, definitive trial is much needed. Well, I strongly agree. I think the next big study in sepsis ought to test a patient-tailored approach. 
This concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Rakshit Panwar, for discussing his fascinating study. Uh, for those of you who are interested in reading more about this, uh, you can obviously find this on AJRCCM's website, and I encourage you to please look at the supplemental material. It contains a wealth of information. Uh, for those of you who are interested in collaborating, you can also find uh, contact information for Dr. Rakshit Panwar on the journal article. Thank you, Dr. Panwar. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for having me. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Thank you.